Uh, my name is Dwayne Crum. I am the director of an organization known as HIV Hope, and we do HIV education seminars around the world that are specifically aimed at empowering nationals to develop their own original strategies, messages, methods for HIV education that are specific to their culture. Now, I got involved in HIV education in 1985, honestly, against my will. God kind of moved me into it in his own way. I was hired by a United States congressman to be his press secretary, and he assigned me the responsibility of becoming his HIV expert. And it was not something I wanted to study, but it was my job. Then I left there and, and uh, after a couple of years and went to work for an evangelist and thought I can be involved in evangelism, go, go with him to the schools where he speaks, and I can forget all about HIV. And my first week he said, we need to use all this AIDS information you have. And so God set me up. And I'm glad he did. Now I get the opportunity to travel all around the world and work with people in a variety of cultures on HIV education. The reason that I asked to do this particular breakout session is because as I travel around the world, I find that the primary people who are asked to do HIV education are healthcare professionals. So as you work in other cultures, in other places around the world, you're going to find people wanting you to teach on this subject. And I'm going to take a risk here. At a conference like this, it's a dangerous thing to say. But in my experience around the world, I find that the worst, generally, the worst HIV educators are healthcare professionals. So please don't be offended at that. But there are a number of reasons for it. And, and it's interesting. I've said that to several people this week, and all of them immediately agreed with me. Uh, part of it is that there are a lot of people in healthcare that honestly don't have all that much information about HIV. Everybody thinks that if you're a doctor or a nurse, you know everything there is to know about every disease. And that's obviously not true. Another part of it is that medical professionals don't tend to be focused on motivation. And I'm convinced that the key to effective HIV education is far more motivation than information. The other thing is that, that there's a problem with, uh, gee, I should have looked before I started. I hope there's something I can use to write on this board, but I'm not seeing it. Anyway. Well, thank you. Oh, it's great to have people who are observant. That's cool. You guys are great. This is going to be fun. Anyway, I, I think one of the problems is that we have a tendency not to be clear on our purpose for HIV education. So I want to start by asking you, why do we do HIV education? What, what are you trying to accomplish when you do HIV education? Anybody? Prevention. All right. Anything else? Sorry? Decrease the spread. That's kind of what we're talking about with prevention. Said a different way. Treatment. Now, what do you mean? I'm talking about HIV education to the general public. What do you want them to know about treatment? Awareness. Okay, but awareness of what? 
See, awareness is one of those words that I hear a lot, but but what do we mean by AIDS awareness? Decrease stigma, okay. I, I don't mean to get away from you, King, King Sui, but what were, what were you saying? Ah, not a curse? You're probably not going to be able to read my handwriting, but anyway. Dispel myths. And one of the things that you don't hear in this country, but I hear everywhere I go in the developing world, AIDS is real. Is that a phrase you hear here? No, because nobody's questioning whether it's real or not, right? But in the developing world, I just got back from eight weeks in, in Zambia and Kenya. They're all talking about we need to help people know that AIDS is real because there are doubts in people's minds about that. So the part of the AIDS, of the awareness thing that you're talking about is AIDS is real. All right. So in all of that, what do you need to communicate? What's this all about? Is it all about disease? Is it all about medicine? Is it about facts and, and uh, information and, uh, and that kind of thing? I want to suggest to you that really what it's about is people. Please don't lose sight of the people. You see, none of the rest of it makes any difference except for people. I was at this conference a couple of years ago, and one of the plenary speakers made a statement that, that I found disturbing. He said when he was in medical school, he came to understand that patients are malfunctioning machines, and his job as a physician was to fix the machine. Not people, but machines that aren't working right. Folks, if we lose sight of the fact that we're dealing with people, especially in HIV education, we fail. Okay? Now, so we've talked about some of the goals. Now, when you're deciding what you're going to tell people about the subject of HIV, you have to have these goals in mind, and you have to have a clear understanding of what you're trying to accomplish. Because what you want to be sure to do is communicate all of the necessary information, but nothing more. One of the problems with healthcare professionals as HIV educators is that they tend to dump all of the information they have on their audience. And they give people far more information than they need. Let me ask you a question. In order to accomplish these goals, do the people in your audience need to become experts on HIV disease? Do they need to know what AIDS stands for and HIV stands for? No. 
You see, there's an awful lot of information that we tend to give that really isn't necessary for this, and if you give them more than they need, you're not going to be as effective. So limit the scope of what you teach to just the things that are necessary to accomplish your purposes. So the purposes, the goals, need to be kept in mind at all times. Now, we've talked some this week in several settings about worldview. People's worldview has a huge impact on the way they live and the choices they make. Now, people's worldview has been defined as what is real. Most people can't tell you what their worldview is. It's something that's, that's been ingrained in them from birth, something that their culture has taught them. The more you understand their worldview, the more effective you will be in influencing their behaviors. Out of worldview comes beliefs. And beliefs are what is true. What do we believe to be true? Beliefs then lead to our values. And the values are the definition of what we believe to be good. Now, all of this leads to behavior, which is what we do. So, in order to really effectively influence behavior, it's best, it's most effective if you can start with influencing worldview, which then will influence beliefs, and then will influence values, ultimately influencing behaviors. Starting with trying to influence behaviors is not generally very effective. All right? Anytime you have questions, don't hesitate to raise your hands. Now, we're talking about behavior. One of the phrases that, that I hear constantly in HIV, HIV education, is the idea of behavior change. And I want to suggest to you that that's the wrong focus. Because as soon as I stand in front of an audience with the idea that my role is behavior change, what does that make me tend to believe about the people in my audience? If my role is to change your behavior, that suggests that I believe that everyone in my audience is involved in activities and behaviors that need to change. Does that make sense? Is that true? No, it's not. You see, there are a lot of people in almost any audience whose behaviors are already healthy. And if we focus on behavior change, we take out of our, our weaponry, our arsenal, what may be our most effective tool, and that's reinforcing healthy behaviors. Don't lose sight of the fact that there's a substantial percentage of any group whose behaviors are not risky. So instead of behavior change, let's focus on influencing behavior, on reinforcing healthy behavior and motivating people to modify behaviors that are putting them at risk. Does this make sense? Are you with me? Kind of. All right. We've talked about a little bit about information versus motivation. I'm convinced that motivation is key. And that's why, rather than going into other cultures and teaching people how to teach, we believe that Effective motivation comes from inside a culture, not from the outside. 
So what we need to be doing is to be facilitating discussion among people within a culture that helps them to figure out how to effectively motivate people. So if you're going to go in and teach, one of the first things that you want to do is get an idea of, from local people of what motivates people in that culture. And if possible, rather than you doing the teaching, for you to, to be equipping local people to do the teaching themselves rather than it coming from you. Now, when you're speaking, sometimes, depending on you where you are, sometimes you will be able to teach in English. In other settings, because there will be enough flexibility, understanding of English, that your audience can deal with that. Other settings, you'll need to use a translator. I've got to say to you, my preference is having a translator. I just got back from Kenya. Kenya has, I think, 42 different tribes within Kenya, each one with its own mother tongue. So if I've got 20 people in a seminar and I don't have a translator beside me, I'm really working through 20 different translators because each one of them is translating for themselves into their mother tongue. Now, if I've got somebody standing beside me doing translation, there's an advantage because there are usually people in the group who speak enough English that they can understand the bulk of what I'm saying. And if the translator misses something, gives a wrong understanding, they will correct them. So there are advantages to using a translator. But when you use a translator, there are some real keys to this. Um, first of all, Avoid colloquialisms. There's a great video, and I'm, I'm going to try and find it. Uh, I saw it recently, of a, a man who is preaching, and he's got a translator beside him. But for so that we can understand what goes on, this translator, though he has a different accent, translates into English. But the preacher, for example, says, uh, my kids were in the front yard of my house. And the translator Translate saying, I'm not sure why it's important for you to know that he has baby goats in his front yard, but he has three baby goats in his front yard. And then he says, uh, and it got to be dinner time, and so we brought the kids into the house. He says, for some reason, this man, when it's dinner time, brings his goats into his house. And we gave the, the kids a bath in the bathtub. He gives his Goats a bath in the bathtub in the house. You know, we use these these things that that means that we understand, but that if the translator doesn't understand our figures of speech, the translation can be very different from what you think it would be. Another key to working with a translator is speak in short sentences, because. The translator can't necessarily remember all of what you've said if you use a long sentence. Now, it took me a long time to understand this, but they need to be short, complete sentences, not short phrases. Why? Because in many languages, the syntax, the word order in a sentence, can be opposite of what it is in English. And so if you don't give a you don't use a complete sentence. Your translator may not know how to start the sentence he's translating for you until you get to the period. 
It's like HIV is what we use in English. But in French, it's VIH. In Spanish, it's VIH. Word order changes in other languages. So when you're using a translator, you need to be careful to give complete sentences, short, complete sentences. Now, different translators are different, and some of them are kind of fun. You've noticed that I tend to walk around, and I would walk around a lot more if I wasn't hooked to this cord, if it wasn't so short. But translators, many of them, will not just say the words, but they'll use the same inflection, the same hand motions. They will move exactly the way you do. And I've had times when I've walked over one direction and then turned, and all of a sudden I'm face-to-face with and running into my translator. So... (laughs) One of the best things you can do if you're going to be using a translator is spend at least a half an hour before you speak talking conversationally with your translator. So your translator becomes comfortable with your accent, with your way of saying things. It can make all the difference in the world. Okay. Science. Here's another area that's a problem for healthcare professionals. The fact is... As you travel around the world, a large percentage of the people in your audience will not understand science. So if you use scientific concepts, they will not be comprehended. More important than that, there are large, large numbers of people, large populations around the world who do not trust science. To them, science is a Western religion. And so as soon as you start using scientific words and scientific concepts, they say, this doesn't apply to me in the way I live. This is a Western approach. This is a Western subject. So find as many ways as you can to accomplish your purposes. Again, go back to your purposes. Accomplish your purposes without using science. In our seminars, we spend a good deal of time with the participants in the seminar talking to each other and figuring out ways to accomplish their goals without scientific language, without scientific concepts, it makes a huge difference in the effectiveness of HIV education. One of the things that's part of virtually every HIV curriculum, every HIV education program I've seen, is teaching people about symptoms. What are the symptoms of AIDS? What are the symptoms of AIDS? Anybody? Weight loss? Okay, what else? Diarrhea? Persistent? Fever? Cough? Okay. Okay. Now, would you ever diagnose somebody as having AIDS based on those symptoms? No. Really? Well, there are some situations where you don't have access to to antibody testing where you, you might have to do that. Right. But in most cases, symptoms are not enough for a diagnosis of HIV infection or AIDS. See, the problem is the symptoms are really not symptoms of AIDS. They're symptoms of the opportunistic infections that people are vulnerable to because of what HIV has done to the immune system. That's why AIDS was killing people for so many years before we ever even found out about it in 1981. 
is because it really doesn't have its own collection of specific symptoms that are specifically related to the disease. But the real problem is, give you an example, the first answer you gave me was weight loss. East Africa, they've called AIDS slim disease since before anybody knew it was AIDS. One of my trips to Kenya, I was visiting with a man. He said, oh, I'm not worried about getting AIDS. I said, really? Why? He said, I've got it all figured out. I only have sex with fat women. You see, when you teach about symptoms, you lead people to believe, you invite them to believe, that as long as they avoid the people that manifest those symptoms, they're safe. But we know lots and lots of fat people with AIDS. The most popular prostitutes in East Africa tend to be the overweight ones. Because people believe this is slim disease, so if you avoid people who are slim, you avoid infection with the virus. The thing that's more important is to help people realize that everyone they know could be infected. There's no way of really telling who's infected. One of the things I love to do is, is take a digital camera and take pictures of groups of people in an audience and, and say, ah, you know what? Every person in every one of those pictures shows all the symptoms of AIDS because there really aren't any. So the person you're sitting next to right now could be infected and you wouldn't know it, particularly could be infected with HIV. When people understand that, two things happen. One, it reduces the stigma because they're not focused on symptoms, so they're not as, as like to be, likely to be looking for people with those symptoms and identifying them as being people with this disease. Two, you also reduce their risk of being infected because they understand that they cannot be safe by choosing people without symptoms, without the symptoms that they connect with the disease. I know the things that you listed are the indicators that you use to identify people who should be tested. But when you communicate that to people who are not medical professionals, they don't understand that. They hear it as symptoms that they can use to identify people who are infected. Testing was listed as one of the things that's so important. Testing is vital. We need to get more people tested. There's no doubt about that. How do you go about getting people tested? One of the issues, I was just talking uh, during the last session, uh, during the break between sessions, I was talking to a man from, from Kenya. And he's a man that, that has a, a clinic and they're doing HIV testing. And I asked him the question, if everyone in Kenya was tested, would the majority of people test positive or negative? And he sat there and he thought about it and he thought about it and finally said, well, I guess most might test negative. prevalence rate in, in Kenya is less than 15%, which means 85% of the people would test negative. But you see, the perception is that if you get tested, you're going to find out that you're infected. Because the, the dramas, the, the 
things that are done to try and convince people to get tested, the person that gets tested always comes back finding out that they were infected. One of the strongest motivators for getting tested is that if you test, get tested, you're probably going to find out that you're not infected and get rid of that fear that you've been living with. People need to understand this, that testing is something that in most cases, unless you're symptomatic, with, with one of, unless you have one of the opportunistic infections, in most cases, you're going to test negative. And then you're free. Well, then they need to understand that testing negative doesn't mean that they are immune. Because, gee, I've been doing all these things that put me at risk of infection, and I'm not infected, so I test negative. That means I'm free to keep doing it because I'm not going to get it. No. That needs to be communicated. Any questions? You folks are awfully quiet this afternoon. Is it because it's late in the afternoon? Any questions or thoughts on this? All right. Why, one of the questions that's always asked, why, especially when I'm working in Africa, of course, why is it that the majority of people living with HIV live in sub-Saharan Africa? Why do you think? Why is there more HIV in sub-Saharan Africa than the rest of the world? Shane? Because of the huge population? Well, we're talking... No, because China has a much greater population. India has more. So it's not a matter of numbers. Good guess. It's fine. Yes? Barriers to education and prevention. There are some of those. Yes, there is an, a level of ignorance there. But i got to tell you, I was in Iquitos, Peru, in the Amazon earlier this year, and I found far more ignorance about HIV. People in Africa tend to know an awful lot more than the folks in Peru did. So that's, not, that, that's part of the answer, but it's not anywhere near all of it. What else? Yes? Poverty. Poverty. But... You find more poverty in India in places than you do in Africa. There are other places in the world that have poverty that's at least as significant, if not more so, than you find in most places in Africa. So, yes, poverty plays a role, but it's not the answer. Well, culture is an awfully broad word. Can you be more specific? Okay, yeah, you're just restating culture. Be more specific. Promiscuity. Oh, People in Africa are more promiscuous than they are in the rest of the world. Oh, okay. Now, I'm glad you said that because it's a very, very common perception. But the data tells us that the average number of sexual partners for people who have multiple partners is virtually identical in Africa and and Europe and America. So it's not more promiscuity. Okay? Yes. The way the partnership is connected. I, I don't understand your answer. Uh, one woman will have sex with many men, and those men will have sex with more women. Okay. All right. That's yes. Right. Is it like virginity? Like a lot of people think if they have sex with a virgin, that... Oh, is it because people believe, people who are infected with HIV believe if they have sex with a virgin, they'll be cured? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of talk about that. Uh, Gil was talking about that in the plenary session this morning. I'm not seeing a lot of 
there is some of that happening, but it's not a generally practiced belief. Yes? Oh, could it be that that's where it started so it's had a longer time to spread? Good thought. Frankly, we don't know where it started. But it's a great thought. Yes? Access to care, like um, access to medication. Access to medication. How does that? Because, I mean, most people that are currently on some anti-Jabara medications are able to reduce their viral load. Okay, so people on ARVs reduce their viral load and are less likely to transmit it to others. But the fact is, ARVs didn't become generally available until about 96, and Sub-Saharan Africa had the majority of cases prior to that. Perinatal transmission, again, we're, we're now being able to, to reduce that, but that, the, the, the bulk of HIV being in Sub-Saharan Africa was true before we were able to do that. Yes, sir? Concurrent sexual partnerships. Okay. I believe that this is a major part of it, and it's something that most people don't understand. At what time in the process of infection, from the day someone is infected with HIV until they die, at what point in that process do they have the highest concentration of HIV in their blood? Where is their viral load the highest? First three months. All right, the first three months, the acute infection stage. All right, that's key because... The difference in sexual, and, and it was suggested earlier, the difference in the way multiple partnerships exist is significant. There are two basic ways that, and by the way, let me say this. In most cultures, the majority of people are faithful. The perception is that everybody's having sex with everybody else, that, they're, that, that faithful marriages are a rarity, but the fact is... The data tells us that faithful marriages are a lot more common than most people have any idea. So what we're talking about here is those who are not faithful in their relationships. Okay, in most cases, well, there's two patterns. One pattern is where somebody starts a relationship with somebody, it goes on for a while, and then after a while it stops. And then after a short time, another relationship starts, and then that one ends. And then after a while, another relationship starts, and then that one ends. So you have a series of relatively, primarily monogamous relationships. It's called serial monogamy. The other pattern is where somebody has sex with one partner, and then they start another relationship at the same time with another one, and another relationship with another one, and another relationship with another partner. And each of those has one or two or three other partners. Oh, it's very different from promiscuity. Promiscuity, two things. First of all, I'm, glad, I'm so glad you said that, because so often people talk about promiscuity being the way HIV is spread. The problem with that is the use of a word like promiscuity increases stigma against people who are infected. We need to avoid value-laden terms in describing the way the virus is spread, because those stigmatize people who are living with the virus. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So the difference here is that this person may have four partners, but these are all long-term relationships happening at the same time. 
So we're talking about multiple concurrent long-term relationships. Promiscuity is a series of one-night stands, or two-night or three-night. It's, it's much shorter. But this is several different partners all at the same time in long-term relationships. Okay? Now, as I travel around the developing world, Africa, Haiti, South America, I'll show this and ask people which pattern is most common in your culture for people who have multiple partnerships. And every time they'll say this one rather than the, the serial monogamy. Well, the second is called multiple concurrent long-term relationships. Yeah, I'll put it up on the screen in a minute. Uh, the problem is that if, if this person is in a relationship with one other person, and let's say they have a one-night stand and they become infected, when they're in that relationship, yes, they may spread it to their, their primary partner, but by the time they're having sex with somebody else, their viral load has dropped because they're beyond that, that 90 days. But with this one, if, if any one of these people is infected with HIV, they're having sex with several other people while they're in that acute infection stage, and those with others, and those with others, and so on. It kind of works out like this. Imagine that the, the boxes are, are men and the circles are women. And you make these connections. You know, this one is connected to this one, and so on. And then more connections. And then more connections and interconnections between them. And then another one. And then the two networks become connected to one another. And then we have a person who the first person has sex with somebody and becomes infected by someone who's living with HIV. And so they become infected. And then that gets spread and spread and it spreads to those partners. You see, suddenly you have this huge network of people, and, and you can imagine the size of the network in a community of people who are interconnected sexually. Now, of course, there's, there's two people in this who are not in this network because they're in a monogamous relationship. They're faithful to each other. This multiple concurrent long-term relationships is a key part of the reason that we find so much HIV in sub-Saharan Africa, and in other parts of the world. Now, it's not just multiple concurrent, it's long-term. Condoms are a very common strategy being used to bring HIV under control. Now, in the church, in a group like this, there's a lot of negative talk about condoms. Let me say to you, there is a place for condoms. Yes, the way condoms are often sold does have the potential for encouraging promiscuity. But there is also a place for condoms. In a, in a marriage relationship or in a long-term relationship where you have two people, one is infected, the other is not, condoms are a very important, very valuable strategy. The problem is, do people who believe in condoms use them every time? I'm hearing, seeing people shake their heads no. When do they not use them? Typically. Or when do they use them typically? Most commonly, 
People will, will use condoms the first few times they're in a new relationship. After they've been in a new relationship for a little while, there's a level of trust that builds up. They stop using the condoms. So the phrase long term is very significant here. Because not only are these multiple concurrent relationships, but they're, they're relationships in which condoms, condoms are rarely, if ever, used because these are long-term relationships. Does that make sense? I think understanding this helps understand what we're facing in some of these cultures. Now, I'm not suggesting that multiple concurrent long-term relationships don't exist in our culture. They do, but they're not as common here as they are in other places. And is that just that's accepted cultural behavior? Yes. Well, more so, more accepted. Yeah, not generally accepted. It's very common, and there are, there are not as many. Uh, let me take that back. People know that people are doing this, but there's not a stamp of approval on it. And they're not going to talk to their spouses about it. The spouse probably knows, but it's not something that's generally discussed. And what does long term mean? Oh, it can be can be can be either months or years. It can be very long term. Sometimes it's not quite so long term. In some places, uh, men will have. Uh, have women that they will provide for. In some places in Africa, they call they have small houses. They have our house and then a woman that they provide for in a small house or two or three. There are so many more factors that are involved in effective HIV education. I just wanted to kind of give you a starting point on all of this. And there's somebody here that I've, asked to, to share just very briefly with you. Uh, Brenda Maston is a, a nurse uh, missionary who served in Togo for 19 years. Uh, and Brenda asked me to come to Togo to do seminars for the people that she works with in a hospital setting in Togo who are going out around the country doing HIV education and ministry and helping churches get involved in it. So I had the opportunity to go and do two seminars for two different groups of people. Uh, and I wanted Brenda to share a little bit about the fruit of that and does it work. Come up here so you can be on the microphone. We'll act like we like each other so that people can hear you. <laughs> um, first of all, I was one of those healthcare workers who did everything wrong. <laughs> one of the people who wrote a brochure so that we after God gave us the burden to reach out to people with HIV and AIDS and in the communities who listed all the symptoms, <laughs> who had all the medical facts down in a, in a, in a brochure. And um, it's totally changed my way of thinking and the Togolese way of thinking, um, having Dwayne come out. Um, I read his book twice, three times, <laughs> and then I just asked the author to come and, uh, because I was so convinced but that um, this, uh, this education is the, is the way it needs to be done. You told me that the first time you read it, you didn't agree with it. All right, I didn't. And that's why you had to read it the because second time. Because I was so entranced in, in the medical model, <laughs> in, the, in the science, and um, to, to kind of 
leave that aside out of, uh, was uh, really difficult for me. So I, I just had to, to keep reading. And what, what he's been saying today is exactly what he taught. He came out and taught um, our adult uh, teachers. We have four groups. that we that What we're doing is going out into churches. Um, we've targeted churches that are in the communities that reflect the community. We have... Um, uh, a team of adult teachers, we have a team of youth teachers, we have a team of psychosocial counselors who come along and help people in pre-testing and post-testing, and then we have um, people who will go out and do home care and to, to visit and to do follow-up for those who have been seen in our hospital and um, that uh, have been diagnosed. And uh, so he came out and taught our adult and youth teachers. And so we've now gone out in 25 local churches um, since you've been there and what a difference it has made. The pastors have caught the vision. They, they understand um, what it is, what it, what it isn't. And um, they, they want us to come back. They, they want us to teach more people in the church so that those people can be empowered to do the same thing. And it's just made a huge difference. Um, and we're so excited to see what God's going to do all around Togo. So the key for me is is for nationals to be doing the HIV education. It's far more effective than us doing it. Uh, and, and so my focus is on empowering them. And, and I probably will never go back because they don't need me. Because they're doing it by themselves. And they don't need an outsider. On my trip to Kenya, one of the comments that I got from, from one of the participants in the seminar was we were so amazed when we realized that we don't need the whites to do this. We can do this ourselves. And I find that very, very exciting. Now, understand, they came to the realization that with God's help, they can do it themselves. The idea is not that they become independent, but that the dependency be shifted from Westerners to God where it belongs in the first place. I'm totally dependent on God for what I'm doing. We're all dependent on God for what we're doing, and we need to be focusing them on their dependence on God to accomplish their purposes. So the book she's talking about is a book called HIV Hope for the Nations. Uh, that's the only copy I own at this point. We're going to get it reprinted soon. But uh, any questions that you have? If... One of the things that I do periodically is to send out a newsletter with updates, with, with a digest of articles that have been in the literature around the world so that people stay current on what's going on. And with each one, I, I put some comments as to how this may be used, how it could be misunderstood, how it could be misinterpreted. It's an email update. If you'd be interested in getting on that mailing list, I'd love to put you on it. I've got some sheets here. You can put your sticker on there. Uh, and actually on these sheets, the first column is to check is, is the newsletter. Uh, <clears throat> my wife and I are missionaries. We send out a prayer letter regularly. We'd love to put you on that mailing list so you can be praying for us. If you would have some interest in the possibility of going with me when I go and teach, uh, you can check that column. If you'd be interested in maybe in, in the possibility of being trained to do the kind of seminars that I'm doing, I'd love to to talk with you about that. Or if, if you're working overseas and might have interest in, in having us come and do a seminar with you, with people in your setting, let me know and we'd be glad to talk to you about that. Any questions? Yes? Do you apply this um, teaching 
I've not, the question is, do we use this in the U.S. as well as overseas? I've not had a lot of invitations. I go where I'm invited. And I've not had a lot of invitations to do it in the U.S. I would be very interested in doing it here. I would love to have the opportunity. The other thing I like to do here is to, to speak in churches uh, because, and this breaks my heart, but as I travel I find that the church, particularly the evangelical church, is the largest source of stigma around the world. And that's exactly the opposite of where God wants us to be. And so part of my ministry is speaking in churches and helping, helping churches understand that, that stigmatizing people and discriminating against people with AIDS and, and saying that it's God's judgment is not biblical and helping free them from that. Uh, the other thing that I would love to do would be have opportunity to work with other mission organizations and help prepare people who are going overseas uh, for working in this particular area. So if you have interest in having us do that, let me know. Yes, sir. Thank you for the good uh, overview. Could you share with us uh, some examples of successful approaches in this problem of approaching multiple concurrent long-term partnerships, since many of those are established relationships? Right. How do we deal with multiple concurrent long-term relationships? Uh, the first step is making people aware of the fact of, of the impact that that has on the spread of the disease. Beyond that, we're dealing with something that is part of the culture. And the, the only effective way I know of to impact and, and modify culture is to get the leadership in the culture understanding it and dealing with it. And they're the ones that can change it. We as outsiders definitely cannot. So what, what I'm doing is challenging the local people making them aware of it, and then challenging them to find ways, because as a Westerner, I can't, it would be foolish for me, in fact, it would be counterproductive, I think, for me to try and change their culture. Yes? Okay, are the concurrent relationships something that comes because of economics? To some degree, yes. Uh, in fact, there's been some research in Zimbabwe that suggested that the, the economic crisis in Zimbabwe has reduced the spread of HIV because it's reduced the number of partners. Men can't afford to pay for a small house for a woman anymore. And so, or they can't afford to go to prostitutes as much, or they can't afford these other relationships as much. So there are some economic factors involved. I've never delved into it deeply enough or seen research that's figured out why it started, but I, it is an ongoing kind of a situation. One other thing I want to mention to you quickly. When you're, when you're teaching, you will be asked questions. I want to suggest to you that there are the right answer to any question has to pass three tests. The first test is that the answer has to be accurate. That seems obvious, but when somebody asks you a question and you're not sure of the answer, there's a temptation to guess. When really the accurate answer to that question is, I really don't know, but I'll check it out for you. So don't guess. Give an accurate answer. Second test 
is it has to be adequate. There has to be enough information so that your audience can understand why the answer is true. Now, I'm not talking about going into a lot of scientific depth, but let me give you an example. One of the two most commonly asked questions that I hear around the world is, do mosquitoes transmit HIV? Well, everybody knows the accurate answer to that, or the vast majority know the accurate answer. But the reason they keep asking is because they've not been given an adequate answer. So people still say, well, malaria trans is transmitted by mosquitoes. Why not HIV? And they say, well, that's a good question. I'm not sure why. So people need to be given an answer that is adequate so that they can understand it and trust it and share it with others. The third test is it has to be appropriate. It has to be appropriate to the audience. That means you need to take into, con into consideration the the educational level of the audience. You're not going to give the same answer to uh, a group of people in a remote village that you would to university students. You'll phrase it differently. Your content will be different. You're not going to give, give the same answer to, to children that you will adults. So, and, and it has to be appropriate to the culture. So when you're teaching, the first thing you want to do is have an idea of the, of the makeup of your audience. The better you understand them, the more appropriate everything you do will be, including your answers to their questions. Any other questions? Yes, please. <laughs> What's the other most common question? How did HIV start? Where did it come from? And my answer is nobody really knows. There's lots of theories. When I'm in Africa or Asia, uh, one of the parts of my answer will always be, imagine that you had a poisonous snake in your house. What's the first thing you're going to do? Is your first step to find out how the snake got in? No way! We're going to deal with that snake. Well, the snake of AIDS is in our house. And it's killing our brothers and sisters. The important thing is not how did it get in. The important thing is what do we do about it now that it's here? So how it started, honestly, we know enough about it to know that figuring out how it started isn't going to help us to deal with it. So our focus is on figuring out how to deal with the snake, not how it got in. And that's, a, that's an answer that people very easily accept. It makes sense to them. Yes? I'm sorry. How do you answer the mosquito question? <laughs> the mosquito question is, takes a little bit longer. Um, First of all, mosquitoes, uh, I'll usually draw a picture of a mosquito, which makes everybody laugh because I'm not an artist. But when a mosquito is drawing blood in, if, if the blood contains the malaria parasite, it goes into the stomach of the mosquito in an immature form. That parasite matures in the body of the mosquito and then goes into the salivary glands and is secreted into, you know, when a mosquito bites you, <clears throat> it injects its saliva into you to thin your blood, and the, the malaria parasite goes with that. HIV, being a human virus, doesn't live in the body of the mosquito, can't get into the saliva, so can't be transmitted that way. Any other? I, I, I've gone over time. I'm sorry. Thankfully, the next thing is dinner, so... <laughs> If you have any other questions, I'll be more than happy to respond. Thank you so much for coming.